the single family house market, you'd be very hard pressed to get one that really cash flowed, really cash flow. I mean, everybody's like, yeah, it makes two, $300 a month. Okay. But you just bought it and you probably rehabbed it when you bought it and you know, stuff doesn't break right away, but hang on to it for a little while and then come tell me how much money you're making on it. All right, everyone, welcome to another interview at the Deals Today podcast. And this is your host, Paul, at realestateaudios.com. And we're going to be speaking with the great Aaron Mazzarillo. He's well sought out. He's well known out here in Southern California. All the REI clubs are always trying to get a hold of him, trying to get him to speak at their club. But we have him right here. We're going to be talking about his last 20 years in real estate because he's flipped He's held, he's traded, he's sold real estate since 2003. He's been a wholesaler, a flipper, and everything in between. And so we're going to talk about his last 20 years and what he's done and what he does now with only one employee. Uh, we're going to be talking about what to do in a down market and the upcoming down market and how cash will be unavailable in those times and how to prepare for that. We're going to be talking about when he goes into buy and hold mode and when he goes into flipping mode. We're going to be talking about how to how he systematizes his parts in his business and why cash flow is a myth in this business. This whole, you know, I'm getting $200 of cash flow a month from this property is all a hoax. It's not real. And he explains all this and how he makes his true wealth and money in rentals and why he stays away from out-of-state properties. He's gonna reveal some of his stories and how he invested out-of-state and why he keeps it away. So all this today in the Deals Today podcast, and of course, if you're not a subscriber to my newsletter, head over to realestateaudios.com and let's get to the interview. One of my email subscribers wanna know more about how you operate as far as outsourcing. So you seem to be a sole entrepreneur. What is your, your business behind the scenes? Do you have VAs? Do you have people you outsource to? Everything that people are talking about doing, I've done, and I've done it a decade ago. I had people in the Philippines working for me and it was great. And then a typhoon would come and they'd be just disappear for four or five days at a time. And just, so I've used Fiverr and up, a Fiverr and Upwork and all that stuff. I, I've done all that and it's good, but it takes management and it takes time. And, and that's a distraction away from why I really got in real estate. I got in real estate, so I didn't have to have a job. So I didn't have to get up and go to an office and have a staff and all that stuff. That's why I got in and I never lost that focus. I have a small office. We call it the broom closet. It's very tiny. And I have, uh, there's two desks in there, mine and then my assistants. And basically I set that up as a property management office for her to manage my rental properties, right? So I have a portfolio of rental houses. So she is in there, she just works part-time. She's probably 25 hours a week. And she just comes in Monday through Thursday and they're my hours, eight to two thirty. And I don't get in there at eight. I'm never there at eight. I usually don't get out of bed at eight. So I generally leave before her too. So, <laughs> so, so she's in the office eight to two thirty. She answers phones, just does tasks that I need her to do, but mostly just deals with the and never ending barrage of tenant complaints and questions and problems and whatever it is. So. Uh, so I just kind of offloaded all that, uh, gave that job to her and I don't have to deal with that anymore. And it's been fabulous. I have one acquisitions guy who works from home. He'll come in and he sits at the side of my desk sometimes, but he he's hustling from wholesalers and looking online and the MLS and by trade, he's a listing agent. Just, he goes out and lists houses and represents, you know, he's a real estate agent. So he represents 
buyers and sellers, but he likes the real estate investment side of it. And he was working for a couple other guys who had a fix and flip business that I don't know if they wound it down or what happened, but they don't seem to be active in that business anymore. They got in doing something else. So he was kind of, you know, he was a hanging chat. He was out there, you know, looking for some place to latch on to. And I was like, dude, I'm, you know, I'd love to have you come bring me deals. And he's brought me a ton of deals this year. So that's been great. But uh, it's primarily me and we don't do a ton of stuff. And it sounds like we do when I tell you how we're flipping eight houses right now. And we generally like to be flipping 10 at a time all the time. Uh, so we closed one Friday and we're picking one up. Uh, we should close, well, hopefully tomorrow. I haven't got wire instructions yet, but it should close tomorrow. So we're always hustling to get deals, but uh, I don't have a big office staff. I don't want to have an office staff. I don't, I don't want to have the office that you would need to support driving Lamborghinis and living in 6,000 square foot. You know what I mean? I'm just not interested in that lifestyle. It's, it's not what I want. So I came from a corporate world. I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I hated it. High income absolutely does not equate to happiness. And a lot of the stuff that you see when people are posting, constantly posting images of, of them and, and luxury stuff, it's because they have absolutely shattered, broken egos from when they were young and grew up dirt effing poor. And you know now they feel like they need to make up for it in their adulthood and showing, look, I actually have value, I have worth. That, that wasn't me. I didn't grow up dirt poor. I had a pool in my backyard and we lived in New England. So you know, having a pool in a place where you can only swim two or three months a year we weren't poor, but we weren't rich, you know, but we had motorbikes and all that stuff. Right. So I, I don't have those ego issues where I need to prove like, you know, that I, so I did a funny post in the time where I thought it was funny, but I have two houses side by side in Rialto. And I think I owe like 60 grand on one. And the other one I owe, I owe $20,000 on it. And the loan on there, I actually walked from another property. So I'd done a seller financing deal where it was zero interest, $500 a month, principal only payments. The guy eventually died and then I'm paying his wife. And, and in the process, I had walked her mortgage over to this house in Rialto and I sold that house and I owe like 20 or 21 grand on it right now. And the payments are $500 a month. And both those houses are worth north of 600,000. So I was like, look, I have Lamborghinis. I have matching Lamborghinis. They're side by side. They're just sitting right there on the side of the road. I preferred to have them bringing me income every month than, you know, me spending money on maintaining them. So. It's there if I want it. I just don't want it. I have no desire to have it. Yeah. I don't want to deal with it. I don't like parking, you know, a hundred yards away from the grocery store and having to walk because I'm terrified people are going to scratch my shit. So it's just, you know, I, I like less stress and I'm not a materialistic person. So do you think that uh, the guys that, um, and they're probably rented Ferraris or <laughs> rented Lamborghinis on YouTube. Do you think those, uh, the ego issues uh, stem from parenting issues? I ask because we're both parents. We're both putting our kids to bed at this time. Do you think that's parent issues rather than uh, income issues? If you ask, I mean, pick any one amount and say, hey, what was your childhood like? And they're going to tell you I was poor. You know, it's very rare to find somebody who grew up wealthy to be bragging about unless they're desperate for fame and attention. Right. So that's a whole different world. Right. That's there's a whole nother psychological issue going on there. But if they're at this, you know, one to 10 million kind of net worth phase where they're they're constantly out there. And yeah, that is just it's just broken ego. That's all it is. Going back to the hiring thing, when you when you first started, the hiring thing gets people spinning their wheels in, in their head and what they should do. A lot of people are asking me that question, when they should start hiring, when they should start outsourcing, when they start getting a VA. At what point did you start getting a VA? Because you have a long, you go back all the way to the, before the 2008 crash, right? You were flipping before then, right? I started flipping, probably flipped my first house in like 2003. 
So somebody recently asked me the same question and he said, if you could go back and tell yourself when you started something and my, my comment was go bigger, faster. So don't wait to outsource. Don't wait. If, you, if that's what you want, don't wait to do it because somebody out there is, they're ecstatic. They want that job and they want to be paid hourly for it, or they want to be paid on commission for it. And if you're more focused on growing your business, if you're sitting in the chair, comping houses or generating leads, it's drastically taking away from your ability to grow your business. So yeah, go bigger, faster, uh, hire quicker. We, everybody, Gary Vaynerchuk said, everybody sucks at hiring, right? Everybody, everybody, everywhere sucks at hiring. That's across the board. What you need to be good at is firing, right? And that's where most people double, you know, they suck at hiring, they suck at firing. They get, they get somebody that's not a good fit and then they sit in their business and they just drag everybody down. And uh, Dan Sullivan, who runs Strategic Coach, I'm pretty sure he was the one who said, what you want to do is get rid of that person as soon as possible because it's going to be better for you and better for them, right? If they're not a good fit for that seat, then they're not going to be happy there and they're not going to do a good job. And then you're all going to be miserable. So send them on their way and let them go find something that they're going to be happy doing. And maybe they think they're happy they're doing it, but you can see in performance and numbers that they're not then get them out of your life and move on and go find somebody that is a better fit. And, and it could just be for your culture, for your company culture. Maybe they're just not a good fit. Maybe they're doing a great job, but they're you know not good at customer service. They're not good with dealing with people, whatever it is. Maybe you love to go fish like I do every Friday. I took my whole crew fishing. I think there were like 15 of us. So I don't have 15 employees, but I have 15 people on a daily basis who get up and do stuff that will get a, somehow money from my pocket will trickle down to them at the end of the week, every Friday. I took them all fishing. Now, if there was one person that was like, oh, I hate to fish. I don't want to fish. I'd be like, eh, you're probably not a good fit here. You know, <laughs> maybe you need to go find the golf crew. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't play golf. That's not my thing. Right. So you might be good at this job, but you're not a good cultural fit for this company. Right. I have a fishing company. Right. We fish for deals and we fish for fish. Right. So, you know, that's what we do. Like our company trips are always going to be fishing trips. <laughs> that's all there is to it. So. If you could start over, if you could start over again, or what would you tell yourself back in 2003 when you started, what would you do differently? Same thing. I would just, I would reinvest the bulk of my money back into my business, not take a profit and run it like a business. I always ran it like a hobby, but if I had to do it again, probably for me, because I was in business when the meltdown occurred, it would have been buy and keep more houses. And, and I've always known that that's like, I wish I'd kept every house I ever bought but you got to eat, right? I mean, you got to pay bills, you got to eat. It's just all there is to it. And the cash flow from rentals is, it's almost a mythical thing. When you have debt on your properties and you say, oh, I make $200 a month cash flow of this house. Meh, do you really? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just spent $6,000 cutting trees at one property last week, six grand. So did I make any money on that house this year? Eh, probably not. But here in California, we have this massive appreciation. So I'm not into these rentals for cash flow. I'm in them for this massive appreciation. And then I can strip equity out and the tenants can keep paying that debt or I can sell them, which I do all the time. I sold probably two or three rentals this year. I buy a lot of stuff, not in great neighborhoods. So I'll fix it up, rent it out for a while, sit on it for a year, pass that short-term capital gains, which is 12 months, get into long-term capital gains, which gives me the ability to do a 1031 or just pay less taxes on it. And I will do that and sell the house. So if I had to go back and tell myself one thing, it would be, hey, try to figure out how to keep more houses in a down market. It, 
it's such a weird thing. Like now there's so much money. I could show you on my phone where people are texting me like, Hey, I got a million dollars. Do you have any place to put it? And I'm just like, I don't, I, I don't have anywhere to put it. I wish I did. I don't, or I got, I got this much money. I got a guy call me today. He's like, Hey, you know, I want to buy, I have this apartment project I'm doing downtown. He's like, Hey, when I'm finished building it, will, will you sell it to me for a million and a half? I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that because he's got money sitting around doing nothing. When we have a down market, that money will be gone. It won't still be there waiting for those deals. It will be terrified of real estate and it'll be, you know, back in the bank or it'll go back to the, the lines of credit that it came from. That money will absolutely disappear. So it's very hard, not hard, it's challenging to find that kind of liquidity in a down market when people are, they're concerned about, well, if you buy it today, what's it going to be worth in six months or seven months? So I was buying houses in San Bernardino and Rialto and, you know, kind of all over the Inland Empire. And I was paying like 60 to 80 grand for them. You could go to the MLS and there were 500 houses in that price range every single day of the week, but you couldn't find anybody to lend you money on them. So they were out there. And that's why companies like Blackstone, they went out and they raised all this Wall Street money. They were able to buy 15,000 houses or whatever. I mean, 50, I think they're like 50,000, whatever. They have some crazy numbers of tens of thousands of houses because they were able to secure that private debt so or that private equity to go buy all those houses. But the average Joe running a mom and pop shop would be very difficult. So I always tell people, always like have financial Fridays, always be focused on raising money. If you want to scale your business, I don't care how many employees, whatever, whatever magic tricks you think you got, you can get $0 leads, whatever it is, you will never scale like you could if you raised $10 million. If you raise $10 million right now at 3% interest, what could you buy that wouldn't cash flow? I mean, you could buy anything. You could buy an office building, have vacant and cash flow. I mean, you could buy almost anything. You should always be focused on raising private money. I've been doing this long enough and I have a reputation where I have more, way more private money, seven figures, more private money than I could need because I just can't get enough inventory. I mean, I'm constantly on Instagram trying to, you know, court wholesalers and we do send a lot of marketing out and there's so much competition out there for good deals and people are willing to pay way more than I'm willing to pay. I'm not going to be forced to do a deal. I need to be convinced. Like I need to be pushed into buying it. I have a house that is down the road from my house here. And this wholesaler called me. He's like, Hey, you want it? Well, it's kind of an awkward lot. It's, it's landlocked and you have to go through a parking lot. There's no driveway. The commercial property next door somehow acquired the front of the property and they use it as a parking lot. So you have to go through that parking lot to get to the lot where the house is. And, you know, he's just like, what do you want? I'm like, eh, it's kind of a challenge. I don't know if I really want that house. He's like, well, there must be some number. I mean, five bucks. Would you buy it for five bucks? I'm like, yeah, of course I'd buy it for five bucks. He's like, so there's a number, right? I'm like, yeah, there's a number. I was kind of like, well, let me get back. I don't know. I got to think about it. You know, it's kind of a weird piece of property. So he calls me a couple hours later. He's like, hey, I'm like, are you calling me to make me make me buy that house? Because <laughs> like if he tells me, hey, it's 15 grand, I'm, I'm going to write that check right now because I'll buy a house for 15 grand, whether it has a driveway or not, you know? So there's a number for everything and there's a time and a place to be buying it. But I'm very concerned where the market is at now. Like I have a, a lead here for two condos and I looked in their senior condos and it was just, uh, there's no, there's probably no number that would make me buy those. It's a very niche market. It, it, two years ago, I would have been all over that. I think I could easily have sold them, bought them, fixed them up. But now, man, we're right near an election. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of unknowns. You got to be careful, right? So, and I could get money on these all day long. But in three months, if the market flattens out, I can't get money. There'd be nobody who wants to throw money at at that deal. And three months from now, I might still be stuck in it. So, yeah, I'm very more a little more picky. What are you going to be doing in a down market? I mean, it's, it's bound to come, right? There's going to be a down market bound to come. And that's the thing is that people don't understand is that real estate is very cyclical. 
everybody who's been in it since 2008 just they, they know it but they don't they don't know it they know it but they don't know it as fact right it's like oh you know real estate everything goes up and down everything it goes up in value it goes down in value stocks they do it much quicker they go up and down right all the time and over long periods of time yeah generally everything gets more expensive just because the cost of goods and services goes up inflation but we're at a very weird place in our economy now where you look at a country like Japan and they've had 20 plus years of stagnant inflation. I mean, just nothing, stagnant growth, right? So we may be at that point now where we just have this stagnant growth and interest rates stay at 2% for years and years. I mean, that's good for real estate, but there's a reason why it's so low like that. And I don't, I'm not an economist. I don't understand all those macro and micro things. But uh, when it slows down or it does start to decline, I'd just be back in buy and hold mode. Try to buy and keep as many properties as I can. Are you keeping right now? Are you, are you holding on to any of them right now? Yeah, actually. So this guy sent me one today and it's in Yucaipa, which is a decent area. And the rent's 1850 on it. And I made an offer where I was at 255 on that. I would totally keep that house at 255, getting 1850 a month. I'm capturing about 120 grand in equity on that. I wouldn't spend very much money fixing it up. So on that deal, I would be very comfortable buying that. Even if it went down a little bit, I'd be okay. But I have the cash flow from my portfolio properties to support me buying this, even if I lose a little bit of money on it every month because you know the rent's 1850 and I'm paying 255 for it. I've recently secured commercial financing that's allowed me to buy property with like three to four percent interest only or interest rate loans on it. I think a lot of people like to hear the when people started and how that was like. And do you see yourself owning this large portfolio? How many rentals, if you don't mind me asking, do, are you holding right now? I've had over 100, but I'm down to 50, somewhere between 50 and 60 now. And you managed 100 on your own? Yeah, always on my own. I never had any assistant. My assistant only worked for me for a year. What's the objection to having a property manager? More freedom. The reason why I got into doing this in the first place, just like I like to go fish with my buddies on Fridays, sometimes in the Saturday, sometimes in a Sunday, we'll just take a boat and go out. And So you do, you do have a property manager. I thought you were self-managing. I have an assistant who works for me and she's running it, but she comes to me for input. Yeah, I don't have a property management company doing my stuff. It's all self-managed in-house. And I just do it through a variety of spreadsheets and QuickBooks. That's it. I have a couple of different spreadsheets that we use and I use QuickBooks and that's it. I don't have any special software. Everybody's like, oh, I got all these. I have a couple of, I have a spreadsheet where I can just look quickly as all the property addresses, the amount that they pay rent, and then just a column for the month. And we can look quickly to see who has and who hasn't paid rent. It's a Google doc, so we can share it. And then we have another spreadsheet where Tenant maintenance requests, we just log them. So one spread, just never ending spreadsheet just comes in. And as they're taken care of, we just put the date. And I have a full-time maintenance guy too at this point. So I have to have somebody just work for me to just chase tenant problems all day long. So, and then QuickBooks just to track everything and reports and things like that. And it's super easy to learn that. And I do all my own bookkeeping, which, you know, again, if you want to grow and scale, hire somebody to do that for you because that's a huge time consuming especially when you're flipping eight to 10 houses at a time. It's a lot of a lot of data entry, very time consuming. Now, was that a long, big learning curve for you to, to put that together into something you understand and something you can do every day, this whole system, it sounds like? So I've always been a very systems-oriented person. 
when I moved to California, I worked in the window business. So I sold windows to apartment developers and my typical customer had anywhere from 50 to 300 units they were building. So we sold a lot of different types of windows, aluminum, vinyl, different colors, different types of glass. So every time I was doing a proposal, I had to create a bid and go through and type in, you know, all this different stuff. And with the different type of window and glass, you had to put in like solar heat gain coefficients and sound transmission, all this stuff, right? And I was like, man, why, why don't I just do these forms one time? I mean, the guys that I work with built this from scratch, this company that didn't exist. It was like three guys, me and two other guys got together. One of them had already started it. He brought the other guy in and then they brought me on and we didn't have any system or anything. So we built this from scratch and, and I was like, let's, let's just, create these forms so we never have to create them again and let's create a sales process so we don't you know everybody can see what what we're working on and i guess that would be equivalent to like today's podio where you can see what your deal flow is and everything so i think systems systematizing things really mcdonaldizing mcdonaldization of things is it's going to be your best way to scale because if you can make a system that you can put anybody in that seat to do that task without a lot of external instruction or management, then you can step away from it and be reasonably confident that it's going to be taken care of very well because you've made it extremely simple. Like how hard is it to go to McDonald's? Could you go to McDonald's today and make a medium milkshake, right? You, you get a cup, I mean, as long as you grab the right cup and you hit the medium button on the milkshake machine, it pours the exact amount, right? It's, I'm not degrading people over McDonald's, but it's idiot proof, right? But they did that because they want to be able to do it again and again and again. And they know they have a fast turnover. They want to spend a lot of time training people. It's like, look, you get this cup and you push the M button and it's done. You've made a medium milk size milkshake. You have to mix anything. There's no, nothing to think about. So if you can look at the daily processes that you do and systematize them, and take notes. And so what I did early when I started was I would do stuff and I would create screenshots and word documents. And then I could just send that to a VA and say, Hey, here's the job. Or you could, you know, do screen recordings and say, Hey, here's the job, what we're going to do. This is how we're scraping the MLS for agent agent emails. Right? So we're going to do run a list and we're going to look at all sold houses in the last 60 days in this market. And we just want to get the agents that we're working with the sellers or whatever it is and go through and grab those emails. And so you can screenshot all that or, you know, record your screen and then you can post on YouTube in a private, whatever. And, and then just send a VA the link and say, look, watch this video. If you have any questions, let me know. And then I want you to start doing that on Monday. And now that's taken care of for you and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Now, I understand you still, you still do your sales calls uh, for when doing direct to seller deals. Is that right? I don't do all of them anymore. I don't, I used to do all of them. And I, and I really, for me, that's probably like, I don't get that excited buying a house anymore. I bought hundreds of houses. It's just no, I mean, no, I don't know. I never kept count. Lots and lots of houses, right? I really like that need to need negotiation. That's my favorite part of this business. I don't care if the rent comes or doesn't come. And I have tenants who pay me, I have tenants who don't pay me. I have houses that need to be rehabbed. I've, I've done, I don't know how many houses I've fixed and flipped and None of that stuff excites me anymore. What I like is talking to people and just getting that great deal. I love that, right? That's like, for me, the most fun in this business is, is getting that yes on a killer deal, right? That's like, so I would equate that to like, I don't want to go and set the tree stand up. I don't want to figure out where the deer are. I just want to wake up, get in the tree stand, shoot the deer 
and then leave. I don't want to go and butcher it or drag it out or, you know, I don't even care if I eat it. I just want to shoot it and walk away. Right. So, you know, for me, that's the most fun in this business. Like, so the butchering would be like maybe the escrow or the rehab, or I don't want to deal with any of that stuff anymore. I just like to pull the trigger. So that's for me, the most fun in this business is, is getting those deals, right? It's like the negotiation. It's the highest paid thing you can do. I don't know, maybe in the world. I don't know. It's like the highest paid job like to be negotiated. Smoking deal. You can, this deal, I saw it right here. You know, that's a $120,000 deal. I spent 15 minutes on it. You know, I can generally get from a cold lead. If somebody calls me cold, and have no date on their house. I can, if I have two screens, I can have an offer to them within 10 minutes. And, and that would be an offer I'd close on all day long and not have any concerns at all that I'm, I'm not going to make money. It'd take me 10 minutes. So I just, I like that process. I like talking to sellers, but the calls, they all go through call rail. They get put in podio and I, I don't do as many as I used to. I, I mean, I still, some mail I'll send out very niche stuff that goes rings to my cell phone. I actually put my cell phone number on there and it'll ring and, and I love it, but I like helping other guys get deals. You know, in my group, I have guys that I'm helping get deals and grow their portfolio. And I, I get more excited about that. And you know, I mean, I could show you the text messages on my phone where this guy here, Steve, I've been helping him grow a rental portfolio. And like, there's you know, the people watching can't see it, but you can see it. Like, this is me responding to him. Like, <laughs> just, you know, just like I get excited when, when he gets deals now, cause he's going through what I went through in the beginning. And what is that that you went through in the beginning? I mean, ex explain that. How is, it's not a destination, right? It's an adventure, right? The, the fun is, is being on the trip, right? So, I got into real estate because I have an income problem. I was making a lot of money in the window business as, as I was making, as I was basically sales and I was making a killing and I was paying a lot in taxes because I had no overhead and it was all earned income, kind of like a real estate agent, right? They like, they get excited about these commissions. Like you're giving 30 or 35% of that, of that back to the government in California. Like I, I wouldn't want to do that job. So I had to get some overhead and that's why I started buying rental properties. And then as I kept buying them, I started to realize, man, I, I like the real estate side of this more than I like the window side, even though I was making way more money in windows sales than I could even imagine making in real estate. It's, you know, I was bringing home a lot of money, but I found that like on Fridays, I would sneak off and go to a landlord lunch. And that was like three exits up the highway from me on the 57 freeway. And I'd go hang out there. And, and at first it was like an hour. And then it was like, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. And I wasn't coming back after a while. I wasn't coming back till noon. You know, I'm all, all morning long. I'm hanging out with all these old retired landlords. And I was just, I was in glory. Like, this is amazing. These people have like the best life. They're just at lunch all day, at breakfast all day on Fridays. Like, was why that, would you want to do that? <laughs> was that mix? He was part of it in the beginning. And I don't remember exactly who was kind of the chair of it, but Mick was part of it. And uh, I think Jack Fullerton may have been there. There was just a, a, a lot of Orange County landlords. And, you know, everybody had gray hair in the room, you know, except the ones who died it. And there was a couple of those. But, it, you know, it was just, it was such a cool group of people, right? There's like these old, and they tell me, oh, I got 15 fleet free and clear houses around Disneyland. Like, that's crazy. I mean, those houses are 400 grand a pop, you know? And, and you just talk to them about, you know, a guy, like one guy just, he got up every day and he'd go to shopping malls and just walk the malls for exercise and hang around. And, and he had all these rental properties and, you know, they're all paid off. He'd bought them all for 30, 40 grand decades earlier. Like, and, and Mick had told me one time, 
He's like, and it's dated now because times have changed, but this was almost two decades ago. He's like, you know, if you get 10 grand a month, you'll run out of things to spend it on. And I'm not a materialistic person. So I was like, man, that was my goal. I had to get 10 grand a month. You know, that just sounds amazing. And um, maybe now you want to up that to 15 or 20 grand a month. You know, I don't know. But if you can work towards some kind of a goal like that, where you can realistically get that as a net cash flow position, there's not a lot that you can't afford in life anymore. Right. That's a lot of money. I mean, it, it's and, and then with the depreciation that goes along on rental properties, you'll pay almost no taxes on it. So, you know, that's 10 grand a month in your pocket. And I'm more of the camp of I'd rather rent it than buy it. Like if I want to go to Vegas, I don't need to buy a Ferrari and drive my Ferrari to Vegas. I can just go there and rent one and have a blast and beat the crap out of it and then return at the end of the day and be done with it. Right. So if you're only making 10 grand a month, you can go have that experience. Cause that experience is like five or 600 bucks. I, I imagine I've never done it, but it, you know, but that's available to you now. So the, you mentioned Southern California, not being really a cash flow game for you right now. There's plays, but the single family house market, you'd be very hard pressed to get one that really cash flowed, really cash flow. I mean, everybody's like, yeah, it makes two, $300 a month. Okay. But you just bought it and you probably rehabbed it when you bought it. And you know, Stuff doesn't break right away, but hang on to it for a little while and then come tell me how much money you're making on it. Because I've been in that camp. And I'll tell you right now, when you keep them for a while, you'd be amazed at the things that go wrong. So I have one now that I'm dealing with where there's mold in the bathroom, bad mold, like really bad. And the tenant never told me. And now she's complaining about health problems. That's a problem, right? So I'm like, oh, I got to get a mold redemption company. The best price is 2600 if the house doesn't have asbestos. But as asbestos, now that's a whole new ballgame. Well, the asbestos company we called, they said, oh, we've actually done two houses on the street already and both of them had asbestos. Well, it's track housing. So what are the odds that my house doesn't have asbestos, right? So stick around. And when you have a tenant, they don't tell you that the roof's leaking for six months. And then you got to replace all the drywall in the bedroom because there's mold all on the wall. Those are the reality of this game. They, they just, I have one now. We do every six months to a year, we, we started doing inspections. And that was the reason why I brought this property manager, this, my assistant, to turn property manager over to her because I need to go in and start doing these inspections because they'll let stuff go and they don't care. It's not their house. They're not fixing it up. They're not going to put their money into it. So we had one and she never told me there was cockroaches in the house. And we get there and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're, they're crawling across the floor in the middle of the day. They're everywhere. So we call cockroach companies like, dude, that house is so bad. It needs to be tented. I was like, and that's like 3,500 bucks now for cockroaches, right? There goes your cash flow for the year on that property. And who knows what else is wrong? So yeah, stick around, man. You'd be very hard pressed to, to buy a couple of single family houses in Southern California and have real cash flow on them. It's just, it's a myth. What so, you get is, is, is equity and appreciation. So, so then do you, do you always keep a reserve on each property uh, right from the beginning of reserve or do you, do you park all that income into reserve and not even eat it in the first couple of years? Well, I, I, because I'm constantly fixing and flipping and I have a lot of rental properties. So I, I am in a cash flow positive position, right? No matter what happens and how much I spend on maintenance, I'm still making money on my rentals because I have so many. I have dozens and dozens of rentals and a couple of them, not a lot, but I have a few that are free and clear now and I have apartment building that's free and clear. So you start to get to a point where you can spend money on rehab and maintenance and you still end up with, with positive cash flow as long as your tenants are paying your rent every month. So I have reserves, but I, I don't park it in like this separate account. That's like, oh, that's my in case things happen money. Like I no, I just, I write the checks out of my operating account and they're the same checks I write on 
I mean, ideally it'd be better to probably flip, separate my rental portfolio from my fix and flip, especially for financing reasons. If I had a separate company that just did the fixing and flipping, it would create cleaner books. So when you were going to do refinances, the company that's only dealing with the property management could show cleaner records related to property management. Because if you just run an annual report and you look at repairs and maintenance and you're fixing and flipping houses, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think I'm just shy of paying my contractor a million dollars on rehabs. And I have my stuff all grouped in underneath my umbrella company, right? I have a couple of different companies, but they're all underneath my advanced sales company. So when you run a report on that and you don't break it down by class, it's like you spend a million dollars on building repairs. <laughs> it's like, well, that's other stuff too. It's not just rental properties. So how California operates is, is that why you don't operate out of state? You don't buy rentals out of state? You have, right? But you sold them all. I've owned in five states and I found that I made no money in four <laughs> states. I, I did much better. Like, okay, here's a real story. I bought a mobile home park in uh, Colorado and at the time, if I had taken the amount of money that I put into the mobile home park and bought a single family house in California, by the time I sold the mobile home park and what I made on it, I would have made way more money had I just paid cash for the single family house, collected the rent every month and sold it at the same time. I would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars further ahead because the house went up, it quadrupled in value. And the mobile home park had to eat all the cash flow in order to, to get the rents to raise, in order to increase it. I mean, it was just a ton of work, right? And it was like a ton of work. There was a full-time guy just fixing stuff and dealing with stuff and bringing homes in. And, you know, just, it was a, all the money, all the cash flow for four years went into just getting the mobile home park to break even and pay back all the debt that we brought on to buy these new houses and fill up all these vacant spaces. Whereas a sing single family house, you didn't have to do anything to it. Maybe fix a leaky water thing once in a while, you know, a pipe or something. And, and it just produced rent month and, and, and then it just kept going up in value. And I made way more money on the single family house. And so I just got rid of everything. So my mobile home park, sold my property in Texas, in so my apartment buildings in Utah. The only thing I kept was I have an apartment building in Massachusetts still, but everything else I sold. Is that the one state that, that did make you money? You, you mentioned four. No, I, I made no money in that state either, but, I, but I'm guilty like everybody else of signing things and not paying attention to what I'm signing, right? Because I, oh, this must be what they told me it was, so I'm just going to sign it and you know I believe everything they say. Well, I was looking at my mortgage statement one time in this building. I was like, man, this thing's paying down really fast. It's very weird. And so I pulled out the note and I, I, I had no idea that I signed a 15 year note on the property. <laughs> I had no idea. I just assumed it was a 30 year mortgage site and the thing would pay off. I've owned it long enough now that it's free and clear. So now it makes money, right? It's full and it's all fixed up and it, you know, it makes money. But uh, it was only because of my arrogance that it ended up that way. So you wouldn't have bought it if you knew it was a 15 year note? I just was under the impression that they were all 30 year notes at that time. <laughs> this was back when I just needed to buy stuff to offset the income I had from, from the window. So honestly, I didn't care if the real estate made money or not. I just wanted to not pay taxes on my window income because I was making so much and I was working so hard for that money. I wasn't working to make money on real estate. I just wanted depreciation. I wanted write-offs. I came at this from a very uneducated perspective. I, I didn't have any clue what I was doing. The first house I bought, I just picked something out of the MLS and went and got a bank loan. I was like, well, there's one rental property. Let's go buy another one. I had no idea what I was doing. At what point did you uh, 
decide to get, you're making so much money in the window business. What made you just switch? What decided for you to switch over? Happiness, man. I was miserable. I was making a ton of money and I hated it. I was so unhappy. I don't care how much they're paying you. And people are like, oh no, you know, if I just had some money, be happier. Plenty of celebrities commit suicide every year. Why? You know, if you're making $10 million, but why aren't they happy? Because the money don't change. It don't change how you feel, how you how you feel on the inside. You can go and drown your sorrows with materialistic stuff, but eventually that wears off too. It doesn't help, right? And you can take vacations and I would take two month vacations. And at the end, eventually the vacation is going to be over and you have to come back and deal with your bullshit, right? So eventually it was just like, and my exact words to the guy that I was working for was, you know what? I was having a good time, but it ain't fun no more. I'm out. And that was it. He just looked at me. I was like, I'm out, dude. Not fun no more. I'm not having fun here no more. So yeah. I'm leaving. And and I, I didn't just leave. I spent a couple, probably a year cleaning up all the stuff that I had because it was construction and, you know, these things don't turn over quick. So, you know, I had to finish all these projects up, but I was so happy when I didn't have to go back to that anymore. And, and I could just stay home and work. I, I never had office. I always worked from home for years and years and never had anybody helping me. You know, if I compare myself to a lot of my peers, people kind of in my circle, they have much bigger net worth, way more rental properties. But that wasn't why I got into this business. I got into this business because I didn't want to get up and go to an office. I was tired of wearing khaki pants, right? I didn't want to shop at Old Navy anymore for clothes for work, man. <laughs> I didn't want to wear shoes, man. <laughs> you know, I wanted to hang out and have fun and go to India and party you know, India's got the best parties in the world. I want to go party in India for a month, you know, and, and I just want to go do this cool stuff. And that's why I got out of the window business and I got into real estate and I just bought what I needed to allow me to live my life on the terms that I wanted. I did enough flips every year to bring me enough income so I could go do what I wanted to do. I wasn't in a, in a goal to do 50 flips or 100 flips or I didn't have these numbers in mind. It was just like, I, I want to fly business class. I don't ever want to fly coach. I want to fly business class. And I want to go on vacation for six or eight weeks a year and not worry about it. And how much money I need to do that, right? I'm just going to make that much money. Well, Aaron, it's nine o'clock right now. I know you need to take off, right? Yeah, I have a kid in the shower by herself. So yeah, I'm no, horrible, I'm... horrible parenting. It's not my wife. Too, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I appreciate you being on here, man. Do you want, and I'll cut this out if, if you don't, do you want people to reach out to you in any way or find you somewhere? You can always hit me up on Instagram. I'm not, I'm not on it every day, but you know, I post on there. I like talking to people. So Instagram or uh, Facebook at Instagram, Aaron, the house buyer, A-A-R-O-N, the house buyer. And on Facebook, just Aaron Mazzarello. Awesome. So Thank you. you Aaron. Message me, message me. No problem. I'll talk to you. All right, man. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate being on here. I really do. All right. That's another episode in the can. And stay tuned for the next one and my marketing tidbits every single week on the Deals of Day podcast. Make sure you subscribe, you rate it, you review it, and you share it, please. It keeps me going with this. It gets more guests on the show. And if you haven't, if you're not on my email list, go to realestateaudios.com, subscribe there to get onto my daily newsletter where I give daily mindset, business, marketing, copywriting tips, all for real estate investors right there and any special gifts I'm giving away. Go on to realestateaudios.com. <laughs>